We're going to turn now to what may be the largest leak of secret documents in history. Publication of what are being called the Panama Papers this weekend has exposed a worldwide corruption scandal, billions of dollars hidden in offshore companies by some of the richest, most powerful people on the planet. But you see, corruption is, is multifaceted. Uh, they are the motivators of corruption, and they are the actors, and then they are the beneficiaries. You always would have in a third world developing country like mine, actors who often act in cahoots with players who ply their trade and residence in countries that are not in Africa. It's a case that has everything, everything except an arrest. And that struck some as odd, because in an 80-page document of court papers, the bank admits to almost going out of its way to act as a financial clearinghouse for international pariahs and drug dealers. These Afghan soldiers are fighting a war on two fronts, one against the Taliban and ISIL, and a second against the corruption within their own ranks. Sometimes it comes in the form of ghost soldiers who appear on the payroll but not on the battlefield their paychecks collected by someone else. This pandemic is causing huge economic impacts. The World Bank has forecast a contraction of 5.3% in global GDP in 2020. That's the deepest global recession in decades, leaving lasting scars on the lives of people all over the world. And this could manifest itself in many ways. A rush to push government policy through to help combat the immediate effects of COVID means that the usual stringent checks may be ignored. And a drop in media advertising and sales alongside new emergency laws may constrain press freedom and independent journalism. And then in states where corruption was rampant prior to COVID have weaker health systems, significantly impacting their ability to combat the virus, leading to a further loss of life. And then there's organized criminal networks who are positioning themselves to capture state institutions and contracts, enriching themselves at the expense of the public. This is part two of COVID and corruption. You're listening to The Impact, Coronavirus and Organized Crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. This special edition podcast is looking at how the ongoing coronavirus is impacting on organized crime around the world and how the illicit economy may affect our ability to respond to the virus. COVID has swept across the world over the last few months, and in recent days we've seen some countries still fighting their initial outbreak, and others struggling with new ones. At the time of recording, over 440,000 people have died from this terrible virus. But although we're still fighting this disease, there is more hardship on the way. The economic impact is already being felt with huge job losses and economic recession. So what opportunities does this health crisis present to transnational organised criminal groups in relation to corruption? Andy Guth is an adjunct professor and an expert in anti-corruption and how it works with transnational organised crime groups. There's a couple of key words that anytime you're talking about transnational crime, of course, one of them is corruption. 
But another one is vulnerability. Organized crime often preys on the vulnerable. And by the way, a third term that we should might as well throw in there is violence. You know, transnational crime or organized crime groups are often structured like other businesses around the world. The difference is they are much more willing to use violence and violence especially against vulnerable people. So anytime we have an economic downturn, in this case, we have a special situation. It's not only an economic downturn, but it's also a health crisis. And this creates a tremendous amount of vulnerable people, especially in the developing countries. And so what I would expect is that it's already happened, it's already begun, but it will continue in the months and years as the global economy goes into a, a downward spiral. That as it creates more vulnerable people, they will be preyed upon by organized crime or transnational crime groups. We've seen governments putting in emergency programs to combat or at least delay the economic effects of COVID. How do organized crime groups manipulate those government programs? Depending on the program, they will find out who's eligible for that program. And then they will design whatever needs to be designed to manipulate that program. For instance, if that program is designed to give out money to businesses, then they will create businesses, whether those are legitimate or not, in order to receive that funding. If the funding is to help build environmental wind towers, then they'll find ways to start businesses to, to do that in order to get the money. Whenever the government is handing out money, Organized crime groups are going to figure out ways to get in line more than once and get that money. You have to remember that organized crime is not separate from the rest of the economy, right? The illicit economy is simply part of the illicit economy. So as the government hands out trillions of dollars to the illicit economy, part of that goes to transnational crime groups just by the very nature of the fact that organized crime groups are part of the regular economy. And with reduced unemployment opportunities due to the economic pressures on states because of COVID, do you think that more people are likely to be pushed into actually working with organized criminal groups as a means of survival? Right. So for those who choose not to flee, they will be faced with other difficult choices. One of those will be to try to find work. If they can't find work, oftentimes in these countries, it's a, it's a very a communal life. So people will definitely help each other. And that's really a great part of, of many cultures. But if you absolutely just cannot find work and your only option is to work for somebody who is, let's say it's not drugs. Let's say it's not human trafficking. Let's, let's make it a little easier for people to understand. Let's say that somebody's making counterfeit goods, like counterfeit Nike shirts. And uh, most of us, I think, would acknowledge that if it was the choice between making a illegal Nike shirt and supporting our family, I think that most of us would probably choose to do that. Of course, once we get into the other forms of organized crime, it's, it becomes a little more difficult moral question. But I think that just staying there with the counterfeit goods, I think that tries to explain to the audience at least that these are tough decisions that people have to make. And have we seen examples in the past of how organized crime have exploited government mistakes for their own gains? Well, I think that we see it any time that there is a removal of power. Now, whether that is another country coming in and removing somebody, whether that is somebody dying, anytime that there is a power vacuum, you're going to see organized crime trying to take advantage of that. Now, as far as governments just being corrupt, one of the main purposes of organized crime, especially in developing countries, 
is to try to corrupt the government and then show the people that the government is corrupt. It's almost as if they want to shoot holes in a bucket and then show everyone that the bucket doesn't hold water. So their goal is to shoot holes in the government, basically, and then make sure everybody knows that the government is corrupt. And then once they do that, the people in some ways oftentimes have to turn to the organized crime group for help. And the organized crime group is happy to help them. And that's how they take power away from already weak governments and make them weaker in order to make themselves stronger. We've seen around the world during this COVID crisis, organized criminal groups launching propaganda campaigns. For example, in Mexico, you had the Sinaloa cartel handing out food parcels with El Chapo's face on it. And we know that mafia groups in Italy have been quite active in this area. How effective is it for criminal groups to actually behave in this way and actually see a benefit in the longer term from that kind of behavior? It's effective and it's been going on for decades, if not centuries, if not longer. Many people in these countries, they already know that the government is corrupt or they, they at least feel that the government is corrupt. So. If the government is going to distribute resources, but in a corrupt manner, once the government can no longer do that, or once somebody else does that, okay, so maybe it's an organized crime group, but that food that's coming in to serve the family, in many people's minds, the government does not have clean hands either. So, you know, if they're gonna come in and feed them and help them, they're more than happy to turn a blind eye, not because they're bad people, not because it's immoral, it's just they don't have the power or the strength to go up against some of the most powerful organizations in the world. So they're happy to accept the gifts and it makes it easier for these organized crime groups to operate in whatever area they're handing out in the short term and possibly in the long term. How important is corruption in allowing organized crime to operate? Organized crime cannot function without corrupt officials allowing it to happen or being paid for it to happen. When crime groups, let's say, want to send things across the border, border guards are either threatened or they are you know, given money. And that is a corrupting of the individual. And, and again, I want to make it clear, I, I'm not saying that the individual is a bad person. And I know that there's this idea that you know, if you're a corrupt official, that you're a bad person. And I can understand that. But you know, imagine if you're a border guard and somebody comes to you and says, hey, um, we would like for you to just not be here on Wednesday from noon until one. And if you do that, we're going to help you and we're going to help your family and your little daughter go to uh, college. And if you don't do that, then instead of us being nice, then we're probably going to have to get violent. And that's maybe not going to work out well for you and your family. And so, again, we can see somebody being put into that situation, but that is necessary. It's necessary for them to have individuals on the borders to allow them to move their goods easily. It's important for them to have officials in office that can help them with laws or depending on the country, it can help them in the judicial system, in the legislative system. So it's important and they continually try to corrupt the state in any way they can because the more corrupt it becomes, the easier it is for them to operate. So in the post-COVID economic landscape, how do we tackle this incredibly difficult problem of corruption? It's going to be very difficult because you have to remember that at this particular moment, the governments are setting up the biggest wealth distribution possibly in the history of their nation. And so the government is gonna be handing out all these funds Organized crime is going to be receiving a lot of these funds, so they're going to be coming stronger. As far as how do we do it in the short run, 
I'm not sure if we have the time to all of a sudden make major changes in the short run. I think that we need to continue to do what we're going to do. I think that anytime you try to react to a situation to solve the problem, I think you've already missed the boat. In the future, what we need to do is we need to prepare better for instances like this, pretty much economic downturns in general, and figure out what we're going to do ahead of time. And so I would probably say that we need to continue what we're doing right now, figure out what we can do better, and then improve that when we get out of the short run, but improve that for the long run. That was Andy Guth, an adjunct professor and an expert on anti-corruption. In 2011, a discovery of a large offshore natural gas field was made just off the coast of Mozambique along the East African coast. And just two years earlier, in northern Mozambique, there was a discovery of what is believed to be the most significant ruby deposit in the world, with the ruby fields stretching approximately 33,600 hectares. This has led the country to be the world's most productive source for gem-quality ruby. But despite this, Mozambique remains one of the poorest countries in the world. It's a country riddled with corruption and organized crime groups exploit this and use Mozambique as a transit country for drugs, timber, the illegal wildlife trade and human smuggling. In 2019, the country was rocked by a huge debt scandal known as the $2 billion scandal, throwing the country's economy into disarray and rocking the political elite. The Economist wrote that between 2013 and 2014, three state-backed companies took more than $2 billion of questionable debt, guaranteed by the government, which was equivalent to about 13% of GDP. Some $1.2 billion of it was borrowed in secret behind the backs of Parliament and the public. And when the scandal broke, the conspirators are accused of pocketing millions, and the court case has actually dragged in those high up in international business and banking. Like other parts of the world, when corruption takes money away from the state, it's the state institutions, like healthcare, that suffer. And in a time of health crisis like COVID, that amplifies the issue. So just how bad is corruption in Mozambique? Professor Adriano Navunga is the director of the Centre for Democracy and Development in Mozambique and a leading civil society activist. Corruption in Mozambique, it is embedded in Mozambique society. It permeates all spheres of society and it drives policy, it drives governance and it has hampered the developmental efforts, it has hampered the democratic consolidation as institutions they are um, driven not for the public good, but they are dominated by people with private and short-term horizon sort of gains. So I would say it is the game in town. How has COVID impacted corruption in Mozambique? COVID-19 has unveiled the structural problems of disinvestment in key sectors, infrastructures, particularly in the healthy and social protection due to corruption. 
So corruption has made impossible the state to invest for decades in those sectors. So what we see today is the state capacity lacking the basics to address this pandemic. It has to do with how corruption has driven governance in the past decades. So when it comes to response now, I mean, you start from the basic trust between government and its development partners, which is not there. And it's not there simply because government has systematically been corrupt, has systematically been failing to commit to its um, promises to tackle corruption. Look at the $2 billion scandal. This is the biggest in Africa since independence that democratically elected government could simply go borrowing in such a corrupt, fraudulent manner. So you would say that not only the government is unable to address that, but corruption has made impossible for government to invest in those sectors. And how is corruption used in relation to ongoing organized crime? What we know is that organized crime have, through corruption, captured segments of the police institution. Not only that, but organized crime, through corruption, it has captured segment of politics and governance in this country. So we have been following for more than two decades now of instances where powerful people in government and in the police institution, they protect gangsters. They protect people who use Mozambique as drug trafficking corridors, all the way from Cabo Delgado, all the way from Nampula to Maputo and then to neighboring countries. So these corridors of drug trafficking, these corridors of organized crime, most of them, they are protected by powerful people in this country. Others, they operate in collusion with high-ranking officers from the police institution and more recently with people in the army. On the GI's Deep Dive podcast, on a previous episode, we were discussing the ongoing insurgency in northern Mozambique, which erupted in 2017. What role has corruption played in the development of this insurgency? I have no doubt that corruption partly explains what is happening in the north. If you look at, number one, that area of Cabo Delgado is a neglected area. Not much of investment has been happening there, partly because of corruption. Partly because of corruption that allows the area that is rich in resources, some of which are alluvial, therefore easily allutable. Corruption allows those resources to be looted, not uh, being used to develop that region. We uh, have cases of clear violation of human rights in that area and brutality by the police. And in most of those cases, that brutality is not aimed at protecting the state sovereignty or uh, the freedoms and rights of the people, but rather to protect powerful people. This is corruption. 
And what about the role of the military? If you look at the state budget, huge chunk of it, it goes to the army. But the state lacks, uh, the military lacks the capacity. That means there is a corruption element that explains that uh, while on the one hand, there are resources in the state budget being allocated for the modernization and development of the army, but that is not taking place to the point of the government now using international mercenary companies. That it tells you that there is an aspect here of bad governance in whatever form to explain what is happening. But also, not less important, if you look at how important military personnel, high-ranking youth officers, they are involved in business. I mean, the, the, the army people, they, they have companies that they do business with the state. And some of these companies, they are directly involved in the two billion scandals. That is an element of how failed an army is. And bad governance, it plays an important part here. So what I'm saying is a governance whose incentive structures are not that of good governance, of course, it encapsulates all this, which to me, it informs pretty well what is happening uh, in Northern Cap Delgado. You're, of course, a civil society activist. What role does civil society play in fighting corruption? We see, although there are all kinds of constraints, all kinds of barriers, all kinds of traits, we see progress being made, a very structural sort of progress being made. Of course, in a context that not only democracy is under threat, not only Mozambique, but in the region, with more collusion between governments and, and gangsters, let me put it that way. But we see progress being made, and these progresses are not using the traditional basis. They are creating new opportunities, driven by the youth, using all sorts of opportunities around social media, and the connection between international and local mechanisms. What we are doing is also to empower the youth to understand that the agents of transformation, they are the leaders, but that also it has to do with how they use their vote in terms of making democracy forward. That was Professor Adriana Novunga, the director of the Center for Democracy and Development in Mozambique and a leading civil society activist. Earlier in our series, we discussed the heroin trade following the route of this illicit drug from its beginnings in the vast poppy fields of Afghanistan to the markets of Europe, Africa and beyond. 90% of the world's heroin is thought to originate in the country, and it has a corrupting influence on state structures and governance. So what role does corruption play in the country that has been at war for the past two decades? Banda Felber-Brown is an author, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and also a member of the GI network of experts. The drug trade is one source of corruption in Afghanistan. It brings in level of resources that few other economic activities in Afghanistan other than foreign aid can match. And so inevitably, it enables corruption. However, even if there was no opium pop in Afghanistan, there would still be a tremendous amount of corruption in the country. Corruption in Afghanistan centers on legal sales of land or sales of land that are illegal because the land is stolen, but the, the thief, say a powerful political person, bribes justice system. The justice system is notoriously corrupt. 
So corruption is fueled by the drug trade, but corruption vastly surpasses the drug trade and would exist even in the absence of the drug trade. Do the Taliban make a lot of money through taxation of opium poppy production? That is absolutely true. There are some times that are quite ambitious estimates that put the level of taxes at 100 to 200 million dollars a year. I am deeply skeptical about those estimates, but I think it's um, solid and reasonable to assume that the Taliban makes 30, 40 million dollars a year, sometimes maybe 20 million dollars a year from taxing opium poppy. But the Taliban acts just like any governing entity, even non-state governing entity. It doesn't just tax the trade, the drug trade. It taxes anything else. And what do you mean by that? It taxes economic aid programs. It taxes legal agricultural production. In fact, the taxes on legal agricultural production are even higher. It's usually believed that maybe the tax on opium poppy, opium production is maybe around 5% by the Taliban, the Usher. Whereas on legal products like okra, onions, horticultural products, it might be 10%. And at the height of US and NATO involvement in Afghanistan during the so-called surge in 2010, 2011, where there were 150,000 foreign troops, the Taliban made tremendous amount of money on taxing NATO trucks. In fact, their income significantly surpassed the money that they got from trucks. Those were trucks carrying supplies to NATO bases. So what is the motivation behind that? One motivation is, is money, is the resources. But there are very many other motivations why groups like Taliban, Shabaab, or even criminal groups in Mexico tax. The act of paying taxes is an act of obedience. It is a recognition of who the authority in the local area is. That dimension of taxation and the pervasiveness of taxation is fundamental. In fact, the Taliban is far better able to collect taxes than the, the Afghan government, whose tax and custom revenue are notoriously sipped off by power brokers, customs officials, police officials, taxation officials, with losses sometimes being 40-50% of those revenues are simply channeled off into corruption are stolen. Finally, I would add here also that it's not just the Taliban, the Texas opium poppy, it is very many other actors do so as well. Uh, whether it's local police officials, local military commanders, uh, local power brokers, officials of the Afghan government. Opium poppy is a crucial element of the economy. It's consequently a crucial element of power. That was van der Felber Brown, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and also a member of the GI network of experts. During the past two podcasts, we've tried to show the complexity of corruption. Yes, there is the broad definition of abuse of entrusted power for private gain, but it varies in its level of sophistication. It ranges from basic bribery to organised corruption, from paying off an official to look the other way to general political corruption in a society. And then certain types of crises are accompanied or even provoked by crime. For example, wars and conflicts promote an increase in violence and organised crime. Financial crises facilitate the commission of economic crimes, in particular fraud. And natural disasters tend to decrease violence but increase crimes against property. 
It's important to recognize that for different situations, there are different manifestations of corruption. So what about now during this health crisis? How relevant is crime and corruption in the current COVID crisis? Ambassador Ugi Zvekic is a senior advisor at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. We can, of course, differentiate corruption in, let's say, normal times and then in times of crisis. And uh, depending on what crisis we are talking about, we can talk about different types of corruption. But it all has to be looked at from a much broader perspective. After all, corruption is just an instrumental opportunistic transaction illicit, of course, transaction. So it, uh, to a great extent, follows what is happening with certain other criminal enterprise or, or criminal behavior. So COVID for is obviously the health crisis, but we really don't have sufficient experience and knowledge about the relationship between crime and health crisis. Few examples at, at hand tend to, to show that generally speaking, crime goes down. And in the case of COVID-19, this has much to do with restrictive measures related to the movement of people, so people's lockdown. And then of course, closure or, or slowdown of the productive and service activities, economic lockdown. But we are far away from having any sort of serious criminological understanding on the relationship between crime, corruption and COVID. Nevertheless, I think these GI series of podcasts on, on COVID-19 and crime is definitely an important contribution to the future work on the more comprehensive understanding of the relationship between health and economic crisis and crime and corruption. So is there an established relationship between COVID and corruption? I think it is important to shed a light a little bit more on public health. Because, of course, public health is one of the greatest achievements, I think, in terms of human rights, equity, equality, democracy. And it is public sector in most of the countries that, in all countries, actually, that carried out the major burden during the COVID-19. So in these type of crisis linked to COVID-19, there were some manifestations of bribery which are similar to those in normal times when the capacity of public health service is very limited and it became even more limited in this time of crisis. But I think that COVID-19 also presented opportunities for corruption in the situations and conditions of the lack of many essential anti-COVID gadgets. For example, in cases of public contracts regarding the purchase, import, distribution of protective masks, gloves, tunics, shirts, respirators, and the like, a number of, I would say, greedy individuals, organizations, companies, organized crime groups profited from such an opportunity to get public contracts, deliver little, deliver wrong things, use counterfeited goods and below standards equipment and make some profit. We've covered many different subjects during this podcast and no matter what the form of illicit crime that was being discussed, an international response was always something that people felt was really needed. What about the international response to corruption challenges linked with COVID-19? There is much to be improved in the anti-corruption normative 
and infrastructural and preventive approaches to make them more focused, effective, efficient, with clear impacts in terms of the corruption reduction. However, calls to put aside for the time being the anti-corruption concerns for the sake of the effectiveness and speed in having things done is, I think, very dangerous call which plays into the hands of a very sophisticated criminal enterprises. I believe this will create new opportunities for organized corruption to increase its presence and effects, and it will be facilitated with deliberate choices made by those who are in the control of the new economy. And that new economy is that of distribution and assistance as the consequence of the COVID-19, facilitating, I'm afraid to say so very much, various criminal enterprises and sophisticated corruption particularly. So I would say that this is really not the road to take. That was Ambassador Ugi Zvekic, a senior advisor at the Global Initiative. That's all we've got time for in this episode. A special thank you to Andy, Adriano, Vanda and Ugi and production help from Milos Yakovyevich. You can read more coverage of transnational organized crime by heading over to our website, www.globalinitiative.net, where you can also find other podcasts like Africa and the Global Illicit Economy, Deep Dive, or The Road to Kyoto. We've also launched an important campaign called The Faces of Assassination. The Global Initiative is bearing witness to and keeping the memories alive of those who paid the ultimate price in the fight against organized crime. Go and check out the website assassination.globalinitiative.net where you can download the Faces of Assassination book for free. GI is also across social media. Just go and search for The Global Initiative. Please leave us a review, like, subscribe and share the podcast around. Our next episode is a roundtable discussion about the impact COVID has had on organised crime. So until then, this is The Impact, Coronavirus and Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. We'll talk to you soon.